I don't know if this is true or not, perhaps it's just a personal observation, but um, it is so good to find a church, and this is a real commendation to the congregation here, that loves expository preaching. Um, <clears throat> it's so important that we hear from the truth of God's word, and um, especially in this season when we can actually bring in a sense of devotion um, as we approach that very special day. And in light of that, um, as many of you know, if you've been with us, if not, I'll just kind of introduce our message this morning from the Word of God this way. And that is that this morning we continue our series called Perspectives on the Christmas Story. And these are the different perspectives that are brought to us by many of those people who were engaged in announcing the Annunciation of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas are devoted to focusing on this in recognition of this thing we call the Advent season. Our purpose is to build a heightened sense of expectation and spiritual preparation. And it's week by week as we do these perspectives leading up to Christmas morning on December 25th. Um, that Sunday will be the peak of our series, and it'll be led by Pastor Tim as he returns to the pulpit of Redemption Hill Church. Yay! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I, uh, I'm looking forward to that so much. I, um, it's not that I don't like being here, but I just, you know... <laughs> Well, we began this series last week by looking at the Old Testament prediction of the coming of Christ from the prophet Isaiah. And there we saw with quite a, a bit of detail God's plan for redeeming a fallen world. It involved him sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to reveal the radiance of his glory and provide the way for man to enter into his eternal kingdom of righteousness and justice and peace. We've sung a lot about that this morning. Now that prophecy by Isaiah was made some eight centuries before the birth of Jesus. And this morning it's appropriate for us to begin looking at the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy through the eyes of the Apostle John. It is there that he gives greater meaning to the birth of Jesus. So if you will open your Bibles, please, um, to John chapter 1. I'm going to begin by reading a portion of Scripture, uh, the first 18 verses. John chapter 1. And as I read... Please uh, don't, don't hesitate to attach this to what we heard last week from the prophet Isaiah, who said a, son is, a child will be given, a son will be born. And, and, and this is John's sense of, uh, from his perspective, of the fulfillment of that Isaiah prophecy. And he said, beginning in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness, 
that he might bear witness of the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, but... As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. Do a couple more verses here. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So in this passage, John pointed out several reasons for the birth of Christ. First, he would be the life and the light of all men. That's in verse 4. And life and light are metaphors that represent this hope of salvation that Jesus brought to us. Second, he would fulfill that hope by giving us the right, verse 12, of becoming the children of God, all who would believe in him. Now, third, that hope would be provided by two things, speaking the truth about man's fallen condition, and second, expressing God's love for us by taking the sin of the world upon himself and nailing it to the cross of the suffering of his dear son, Jesus Christ. Verse 17 tells us, grace and truth were realized through Christ Jesus. There's a fourth reason why Jesus came to earth. Verse 14 tells us, that he would reveal the very glory of God. In fact, it would be safe to say that this reason takes in all of the other reasons because John connects it right to his incarnation, right in the same sentence. We've heard a lot about that word incarnation. It's a compound Latin word, in, which means in, and caro, which means flesh. And together they mean in flesh or to be endowed with a human body. So when John said in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld, um, among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth, he was presenting the truth that Jesus was the invisible glory of God himself. That was the overarching reason why Jesus took on human flesh. He revealed the glory of God because he was the glory of God. We have sung about that this morning. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he said, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, 
For God said, the light which shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ necessarily then connects this verse in John, 4, John 1.14 right back to verse 1 which is why they are often mentioned together in conversation. We say, oh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Those things go together so well. John fit it perfectly together. Let me give you a picture of this. Imagine for a moment, 2,000 years ago, there is the Apostle John sitting at a table in his house in the bustling city of Ephesus. He's well into his 80s, maybe even older. His head is bowed down over a piece, a blank piece of parchment in the quietness of his home. His hands are, are resting on each side of the paper. His palms are down. His head is bowed. And he's waiting. He knows that he's coming to the end of his days. He also knows that he is the last surviving apostle. All of the others have been martyred over time. Since they all walked with Christ some 60 years ago from his perspective. Some of them like Matthew. Matthew wrote their own accounts as we read of those days and events. But John knows by the Spirit's filling an illumination that his calling was to give meaning to it all. And so finally, he reaches out and he picks up his quill and he begins to write about the person and about the work of the Lord Jesus. He wrote about the incarnation in verse 14, but it wouldn't be good to start there. We have to look at who it was that was really born that first Christmas day. And that we have, to do that, we have to return to verse 1. Because in verse 1, there are three descriptions that explain the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three descriptions that explain his nature. First, in the phrase, in the beginning was the word, refers to a timeless eternity, it harks all the way back to Genesis 1.1, where it says, in the beginning, same words, God created the heavens and the earth. Just as God existed before he created the universe, Jesus existed before his incarnation. It was God's choice at the right time and for the right reason to bring the Lord Jesus to take on human flesh and for a very benevolent purpose. The second phrase, and the word was with God, indicates his individuality and his equality with God. Robertson says the literal idea of, of this comes out like this. He was face to face with God. It implies personality. It implies coexistent fellowship with God. The third statement, and the word was God, is a clear and simple statement of the deity of the Lord Jesus. Together, those descriptions explain this amazing glory of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is called the Word in both, both verse 1 and verse 14. In Greek, it is logos. Logos. Lenski defines that as the final and absolute revelation of God embodied in God's own Son, Jesus Christ. He is the logos because in him, all the purposes, plans, and promises of God are brought to a final focus in an absolute and, and true realization. All of the purposes and plans and promises of God are brought to a final focus and an absolute realization. So, brief review. The nature of Jesus, verse 1, involves eternality, individuality, equality, face-to-face, -face intimate fellowship with the Father, and fully God himself. The work of Jesus... Verse 14 involves him stepping aside from his place and power as God, humbly taking on flesh, and dwelling among us in order to dispense the truth and the grace of God to the world, and that's to us. As I mentioned earlier, this series of Advent messages leading up to Christmas morning carries the title Perspectives, Perspectives on the Christmas Story. Last week we had Isaiah's perspective. This morning we have just seen the Apostle John's perspective. Jesus is God incarnate in human flesh. I'd like to give you one more perspective. This one, interestingly, is from the archangel Gabriel. We really see him in the book of Daniel, uh, bringing comfort to Daniel. His testimony spans the annunciation of Jesus' coming. It spans his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his final victory over the enemy. This is Gabriel telling his story. It's done in a devotional way. I, mean, I think it'll be very meaningful to all of us. Him speaking. God sent me to Nazareth in a, to a humble virgin. Greetings, Mary. You have found favor with God. The Lord is with you. Oh, startled, she jumped away from me. You have nothing to fear, I said, because the favor of God has found you. God has a wonderful gift for you. You will conceive and, and give birth to a son. You will name him Jesus, and he will be proclaimed the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. How can this be possible? For I'm a virgin, she asked. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, I said. Your child will be holy and will be called the Son of God. Your cousin, Elizabeth, is pregnant with a son in her old age. People called her barren, but she is now in her sixth month. For God, nothing is impossible. Oh, I am the willing bond slave of the Lord, she said. Let everything happen to me 
just as you have said. I returned to God's presence. A hush passed over heaven as the Holy Son, in perfect obedience to the Father's will, stepped aside from his royal position and power. Much as the Spirit had hovered in creative power over the world, so now he hovered over the young virgin. Divine majesty was conceived as an embryo within the virgin's womb. The Creator had become one with his creation. God dispatched us to earth to announce the Messiah's humble birth. We sang in praise and adoration, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace on men to whom God's favor rests. In humility, the young child lived in submission to Mary and Joseph. Jesus toiled in common labor in Joseph's carpenter shop, his father. At his baptism, God the Father confirmed Jesus' Messiahship by sending the Holy Spirit on him in full measure. After Jesus, our Lord had proven his character by defeating Satan on the Mount of Temptation. Some of us were allowed to minister to his physical exhaustion. It was then that I remember Jesus was the one spoken of when the man and the woman were expelled from the garden. He was the seed of the woman who would deal Satan a mortal wound. He had defeated Satan in heaven. Now he would defeat him on earth. You understand that we angels love to look into such things. Yet none of us could comprehend why so many of earth's people treated Jesus the way they did. They arrested, falsely accused, and crucified him. He died and was buried. We had been prepared to sing anthems at his coronation as king of kings, but instead, gloom settled over us. The demons laughed and taunted us with, a vile, with vile suggestions. The tide has turned. Watch now for our new assault on the throne. Then we beheld the glorious resurrection of the slain Son of God. One of our angels rolled a stone from the tomb and cried out in triumph, He's not here! He is risen, just as he said he would. Heaven erupted in praise. Satan, the prince of death, had received his mortal wound. We awaited the return of the Son to his seat at the right hand of God, the Father, and we were amazed at the new splendor the Father showered on his Son at his return. When I think of Satan and his pride, Archangel Michael said, and remember the humility of Jesus, my heart almost bursts with love. I saw the Savior go forth from heaven, knowing what he must face on earth. I said, he desired only the joy of doing the Father's will. He became one of them. Now I understand the importance of the animal sacrifices. Every animal the people sacrificed pointed to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who died for the sins of the people. He became the final sacrifice. No more animals had to die. What a wonderful plan. Michael and I, along with all of heaven, rejoice now 
when sinners believe that Jesus died for them and rose from the dead for their salvation, we often remind ourselves and we remind you that joy in its deepest sense comes only from the worship of God and obedient service to his will. And so it has been from the beginning. So will it ever be. If you could see, as we see, the agony of despair on the faces of Satan and his legions, you would never seek for joy in sin again. You would find true joy in fellowship with God and in obedience to his will. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten, full from God, full of grace and truth. This is the one whose birth that we remember on December 25th, yes? We exchanged gifts at Christmas time, but the greatest gift ever given, as was spoken already this morning, was God's gift to us of his only begotten Son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting eternal life. And so we rejoice and give him thanks for never forgetting that gift of grace upon grace upon grace. Amen? Amen? Well, Heavenly Father, we have read from your word. We have devoted our time to, over these past couple of weeks, to the looking at the different perspectives that we have seen about the Christmas story. We have seen from the prophet Isaiah and respect so much his esteemed place in the Testament. We have seen from the New Testament Apostle John that he knew the truth and he revealed the truth and he revealed that truth in, in, in greater measure to us. And so what can we do but say these different distinctives have an impact on us. They prepare us spiritually for that great day when we will celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus. Thank you so much for it. And now, Lord, as we rejoice in more song, we ask that you would bless us as we have loved you as you have loved us first. Thank you for it, and in his precious name, the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus. Amen.